you, I probably told you guys this a couple times before, but I like to bake. I like to bake. You guys remember me liking to bake? I do. I like to bake. And I don't, I don't bake much anymore because of my diet, but for, for all of you kind of like noobs out there with baking and cooking and all that kind of stuff, baking isn't as complicated as you might think it is. Um, it's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, in fact, if, if you don't even want to be adventurous, just follow a recipe and you'll be fine. Like it's not that big of a deal, okay? However, if you're going to make a dessert work, you always need an ingredient that pulls the whole thing together. There, there's always at least one or two ingredients that do that. Something that brings all the flavors into like kind of one smooth, tasty bite, right? And you don't want to make, you know, something like maybe a delicious batch of chocolate chip cookies by just throwing in like a bunch of flour and sugar and chocolate chips and, you know, maybe some, I don't know, baking soda or something like that. And then, you know, mixing it up in your little mixer. And then because all you're going to do is find yourself staring at like a chocolate landscape covered in snow. Like it's just, that's all it is. And so for chocolate chip cookies, what you need is you need a special ingredient that's going to bring it together. You need butter or, or shortening or eggs to allow the flour and the sugar and all the other powders to, to kind of shake hands with the chocolate chips. That's how it works. So there are certain ingredients that are needed to pull everything together. And this morning, we're going to take a look at one final commandment, the 10th commandment, do not covet. And so far, we've seen nine awesome commandments, right? We've seen nine of them. But right now, they're just kind of standing all by themselves. They're just kind of like in their own little corner doing their own little thing. And they need one ingredient to pull them all together. The 10th commandment is that ingredient. It pulls all 10 commandments together. All the 10 commandments up to this point have dealt with anywhere from personal convictions to external behaviors. But so far, nothing's really addressed the attitude behind it all. Okay? And so what kind of attitude do we need to bring to the table that'll color the way we live out the Ten Commandments. What kind of attitude is demanded from you shall have no other gods before me? Uh, what sort of temperament is required for do not make for yourself an idol? How should you live out do not take the Lord's name in vain? What kind of mentality should govern keep the Sabbath holy? In what manner does God expect you to honor your father and mother? What's your disposition behind do not murder? What's your outlook behind do not commit adultery? In what way should you not steal? Or in what frame of mind should you not bear false witness against your neighbor? The answer is the 10th commandment. Do not covet. Coveting is an attitude of longing for something you aren't allowed to have. That's what coveting is. We could put it in a, uh, kind of put it another way. The opposite of coveting is contentment. It's contentment. Being completely satisfied and happy with what you have. And so contentment is the attitude we need to bring to the table with the rest of the Ten Commandments. It deals with your internal disposition rather than your external actions. Okay? It focuses on your inner person rather than your outer person. It places emphasis on self-control rather than how to control other people or circumstances outside of you. The Tenth Commandment is all about contentment. It's all about contentment, and it broadcasts this very simple, uh, this very very simple principle. Okay, do not covet. Basically, is talking about 
that God cares about contentment. God cares about contentment. And contentment is an internal state of happiness and satisfaction. It's kind of like this, like a big sigh of relief. Ah, that's contentment. That's contentment. It's, it's a very simple state of peace. And to put it another way, contentment's an attitude that enjoys the little things. Enjoys the little things. Because you've decided to relinquish control over the big things. That's contentment. Contentment recognizes that God's the creator of the universe. And I'm not. He owns everything. I don't. And so it's God's right to decide what I get to own and what I don't get to own. And that's okay. That's okay. So when I see God as creator, I learn to be generous with what I have because I realize it's not really mine in the first place. That's contentment. And contentment also recognizes that God's not just the creator of the universe. He's also its sustainer. He's also its sustainer. And I'm not the sustainer. So it's God's responsibility to keep the world going. It's not my responsibility to keep the world going. I don't have to be Superman and do everything, right? That, that's his job. So when I see God as sustainer, I learn to be calm and composed when life doesn't go my way. Because I realize it's not really my world to control, it's God's. That's contentment. Contentment's an attitude that accepts you don't have ownership over anything or control over anything. God does. God does. But here's what's so strange about contentment. Even though contentment admits that God's in control and you're not, that doesn't make you some sort of hopeless slave without any control over anything or, or having any freedom to make any choices. Contentment doesn't like handcuff you just to kind of accept God's plan for your life blindly, whatever that plan may be. Contentment actually takes the handcuffs off. Without contentment, you spend your entire life trying to control the outcome of every situation. You try to micromanage every scenario, control every person, and acquire every desire of your heart. It's tedious. It's stressful, it's burdensome, it's overbearing, it's slavery. You're enslaved to yourself and your desires. You're handcuffed to whatever, you're the, whatever your heart is after. Because at the end of the day, you'll never get everything you want. You can't, you don't have that kind of ownership or control. Or control. But with contentment, with contentment, you get to relax in God's plans. Because no longer is the weight of the world on your shoulders, you can now go about life without the pressure of wondering if everything is going to turn out okay because God's in control. Everything is going to turn out just fine. He's got it. And thank goodness you're not in charge because who knows how the, everything was going to turn out, right? I mean, you may have the best intentions in the world, but let's face it, you're not everywhere. You're not all-knowing and you're not all-powerful. You're not omnipresent, omniscient, or omnipotent. You couldn't control the outcome of the world even if you tried. But you don't have to. You shouldn't. The results are in the books, and it's good. It's good because it's got God's fingerprints all over it, not yours. So now you're free to live life in a way that honors God. Contentment takes the stress out of life. And as we open the pages of our Bibles this morning, 
and begin to study contentment, we see this playing out before our, our eyes. Contentment doesn't restrict you, it releases you. It doesn't shackle you, it sets you free. It doesn't limit your freedom to choose for yourself. It actually liberates your, to, you to make decisions for yourself. Uh, you know, here, here's a question for you. Don't you want to have peace and control over your life? Don't you want to have joy and contentment? I think all of us would probably say yes, right? I want to have peace. I want to have joy. I want to be happy. Well, let me share with you a three-step process to achieving contentment. Okay, three-step process. What does the Bible tell us is the pathway to contentment? So, to do this, let me uh, let's look at step number one really, really quickly. The first step is deny yourself. Deny yourself. Okay. <clears throat> Coveting is greedy. Coveting is greedy. It feeds on selfish, impulsive desires. It indulges in personal cravings and aims to please yourself. It seeks reckless abandonment and doesn't know the meaning of, I've had enough. It's, it never has enough. It's, it's the very definition of discontentment. But the opposite of coveting, contentment, resists selfish, impulsive desires. It, take, it refuses to indulge in personal cravings and to please yourself. It seeks moderation, and it knows when to say, I've had enough. We find a very fitting story in the Old Testament of the nature of contentment versus coveting. Um, so go ahead and take your Bibles and let's open them up to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. This recounts the story of a man named Achan. Achan. And you can always remember Achan's name um, because Achan was Achan for bacon. Okay? Achan was Achan for bacon. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, but... That's how I remember Achan's name, okay? Joshua chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. Remember, Joshua is just the, the, the sixth book of the Bible after the, the law of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, um, says this, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So God kind of gets bent out of shape here, okay? Because Achan was Achan for bacon, all right? And he's, he, he, he really coveted, he really wanted something, uh, and Joshua verse 7 calls what he wanted devoted things. He wanted devoted things. Your Bible might say things under the ban, if you have like an, an NASB or something like that. What are devoted things? What are things under the ban? What are we talking about? Well, you see what happened in Joshua chapter 6, the chapter before Joshua 7, is the story of Jericho. You guys remember the story of Jericho? Here, I'll draw it for you. All right. Let's see. All right. The story of Jericho is where you know Israel is is 
It take, tries to take out Jericho, not by attacking it like head on, but by walking around the city and blowing trumpets. You guys remember that? Like it was crazy. And then, you know, like the, the walls, you know, come down and stuff like that. And the French peas are singing, you know, keep walking, but you won't <laughs> knock down our wall and that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, yeah, veggie tales. It's, it's great. Uh, well, before they went on kind of this seven-day hike around the city here, God gave Israel a strict warning. Do not, under any circumstances, take, take for yourself anything that's left over from the pile of rubble that will soon be the city of Jericho. Don't take anything that's, that's there. You know, you see a table, leave it. You see a lamp, just let, leave it be. Don't, don't take anything, okay? But as you can imagine, once an entire city's walls cave in and everyone inside gets wiped out, there's bound to be that one guy, that one guy that's like, um, hey, this Jerichoian over here owned a 70-inch flat screen TV. And, you know, can I keep it? And it's like, no. Please? It's just sitting there, like, asking to be taken. No. Please? No. Please? No. Okay. Well, just out of curiosity, what are we planning on doing with it? We're going to burn it. What? Like, are you serious? Like, why? It's, why, why would you do something like that? It's, it's a perfectly good flat screen. Why are you burning it? It's devoted to destruction. It's under the ban. That's what it is. And, and that's where you get this terminology that says devoted things or things under the ban. Everything in Jericho was labeled as a, as a devoted thing or a thing under the ban. It's, it's, it's like something, I'm sorry, it's like someone went through the entire city and stamped on every single item, trash, 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 trash. And just, and, and why? Because God wanted everything in that city to burn. They're not supposed to take anything. And the reason why is because Jericho was the first city Israel was going to go and attack. They needed to make a statement that they were going to basically take out the entire region of Canaan. They wanted to put fear in the hearts of the entire, in the, enti- in the entire land. And so they did. Now, don't worry. Like, there's going to be other cities that um, Israel conquers, and they're going to be able to, like, take the stuff that, that they, you know, when they attack the city. But Jericho's not one of them. They had to burn everything. So it doesn't make logical sense to us because we're so materialistically minded in our culture, I think. You know, as Americans, we're so resourceful. We're efficient with everything. You know, if something's free, we stock up on it. You know, like we go to, we have stores like Sam's and Costco that you can buy stuff in bulk. Like, I mean, like that's our nature. Like we just, we love stuff. Like if we see it, it's ours and we have to have it, all right? That's just the way we are. We don't have time. Well, okay, so yeah, we, we, we don't have the time and the, you know, to, to just like let things just burn and stuff like that, okay? So, um, but so everything burned though, all right? Flat screens and all. That was the whole point of Jericho, all right? Everything was supposed to burn. Or so they thought. You see, Achan was Achan for bacon, and he secretly confiscated that 70-inch flat screen TV, okay? Or whatever it was. I mean, I really seriously doubt it's a flat screen TV, right? I mean, a little hard to it's 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 you know, it's a, it, not only is it doesn't exist back then, but it's a little hard to get away with something like that, you know, it's like What's behind your back? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Just like a big sword. It's like, that's quite a big box-shaping looking sword you got back there. It's like, 
yeah, it's all the rage these days, man, you know, like, uh, but in all seriousness, Aiken actually stole probably a coat uh, of all things and some cash. And so that's, that's basically what he stole. But do you guys know what happened to Aiken because he did that? Because he stole these things um, that God said were off limits, things that were devoted to destruction, things that were another ban, drop down to, to verse 25 of this chapter and you'll, find, you'll see what happens here. Okay. This is what happens to Aiken for taking some of the devoted things. And Joshua said, why do you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned turned away from his burning anger. They executed him. They stoned him. And they burned his body. Just like they burned the city of Jericho. All because he coveted what wasn't his. Achan demonstrated an attitude of discontentment, a lack of self-control. He didn't deny himself. He indulged himself. But contentment always chooses to to deny yourself. It refuses the cravings of your flesh because your flesh always wants something that's off limits. Well, as you can guess, denying yourself isn't just a principle we find in the Old Testament. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 9, 23, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. That's contentment. This is is hard for you. This is hard for you. You're used to instant gratification. That's your culture. That's what you live in. You know, what am I going to eat for lunch? No time? I'll just throw in a hot pocket in the microwave, you know? You know, is the temperature too hot in your car? You know, no biggie. I'll just turn up the AC, and in five seconds, I can feel like an Eskimo in Alaska or something like that, right? You know, had a long day at school? You can just plop down on the couch in your home and turn on your TV, open up Netflix, and instantly choose from 2,000, you know, different ways to cheer yourself up. That's the way it works. Instant gratification. When you have everything at your fingertips and everything's catered to at the drop of a hat, it's not easy to deny yourself. It's not easy. When there's no time for lunch and you open the freezer to grab a Hot Pocket and only discover you're out, there's no more left. When you're driving down the road in 115 degree heat and soon figure out that the AC isn't working in your car, or when all you want to do is veg on the couch and you're in front of your latest Netflix binge, you know, and yet to your horror, your internet's gone in your house and you can't actually open up Netflix and your mom tells you that she needs to get a repairman out there again to have it looked at. You know, by the way, I didn't make that last one up. That actually happened to me. <laughs> that was a true story. It's exactly. It's normal. When instant gratification becomes delayed gratification, what happens? You get impatient. You get frustrated. You get angry. You start complaining. You start whining. You start thinking about everything you don't have instead of remembering what you do have. So you lose self-control. You lose contentment. It's easy to deny yourself. It's not easy to deny yourself in those moments. It's hard. But you want to know what the secret to denying yourself is? How do you keep yourself from getting worked up about everything you don't have? Be thankful for what you do have. Be thankful for what you do have. Thankfulness is the key to denying yourself. When you're you're thankful, you're more thoughtful about what you have and less concerned about what you don't have. You know, thank God that Although there's no Hot Pocket in the freezer, there's a Taco Bell just down the street, you know? 
Or thank God that even though the AC is not working, at least your car works and you can, you know, go down to the local repairman and get it fixed. You know, thank God that although there, there's not like Netflix or the internet's out or something along those lines, you know, you at least still have your couch that you can lay on and relax on after a long, hard day. I mean, do you really need Netflix to relax? You're like, yes, absolutely. You know, no, you just think you do. You just think you do because you're coveting what God doesn't want you to have right there in that moment instead of being thankful for what God has given you. Contentment challenges you to leave what you don't have or can't have alone. Leave it alone. If God wants to take it away, let him take it away. It's not yours anyway. It's not yours. And contentment also dares you to embrace what, what you do have through a thankful attitude. That's contentment. It chooses to deny yourself. You don't own anything. You don't control anything. So everything you, you've got is, undeserved, is an undeserved blessing from God. Okay? And that's the very principle, actually, that 1 Timothy 6, 6 teaches us. You don't have to turn there, but it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be, ha- we will, uh, be content. You know, when you walked out of your mother's womb, you, you weren't carrying a suitcase full of stuff. You know, you didn't have your Xbox One or your iPhone yet or anything like that. Uh, when, you, when you're laid down into your funeral casket, you're not going to have any of those things either. You didn't come in this world with anything. You're not going to leave with anything. What's the point? Everything you have in life, all your possessions, were given to you. You don't own them. They're not inherently yours. It's not yours. It's, 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 it's on loan to you by God like a library book. You just have it for a time, and one day you're going to have to give it back. So quit complaining about what you don't have. Even what you, even what you have is not yours. Just be grateful for what you do have and, and enjoy what God has given you in this life. So deny yourself, okay? Deny yourself. Two, prefer others. For others. Coveting seeks revenge. It's ruthless and it's vengeful. It, it holds on to bitterness and resentment, but contentment sympathizes with others. It shows compassion and grace and kindness. It forgives when someone else has wronged you and it overlooks other people's faults. And I think a good place to see this is Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. So go ahead and turn over there for a moment. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought uh, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard whatsoever. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So both Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. Abel brought the first fruits of, uh, sorry, sorry, brought, um, Abel was a shepherd, so he sacrificed an animal. Cain was a farmer, so he sacrificed the fruits and vegetables of his produce of his trees in his vineyard. So for whatever reason, God accepted Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's. And this drove Cain mad, and he was discontent because he was jealous of Abel. He grew bitter towards him. And you guys know what happened. What did Cain do to Abel? He killed him, right? He killed him. 
That's what discontentment does. It doesn't just make you crave something else. It also makes you angry at others if they stand in your way. And so, so that's what happens exactly in, in, in the Cain and Abel story. We find discontentment also turns on other people. It's easy to lose self-control, but you can lose um, self-control just by yourself or just internally. Um, you know, and that's exactly kind of what we see with, 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 with Cain in this particular story. He lost his self-control externally by, by, by um, harming Abel, but that started in the heart. Because God, what did God say? He said, sin is crouching at, your do- at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It starts in the desires of the heart. It starts there. I mean, it's easy to lose self-control, but, but you can also lose it internally and, and not actually express it externally. You know, here's an example of this kind of like I was talking before, you can get frustrated in your heart when there's no hot pocket in the freezer, right? You still, you know, keep your cool on the outside. You just kind of fume on the inside. You can fume to yourself when the AC isn't working and still kind of put on a fake smile about it. You can complain that Netflix isn't working while no one's, you know, home to hear you gripe about it. You can do that. Failing to deny yourself can all be internal and it can all be personal. But Cain's lack of self-control didn't remain internal. It actually expressed itself externally. It wasn't just a secret in the heart. It was a public demonstration of retaliation. And coveting can do that. It can do that. It can move into the realm of, of taking out your jealousy and frustration on someone else who's preventing you from having it. Instead, Contentment challenges us to prefer others. Prefer others. Don't retaliate against them. Prefer them. Prefer them. Don't run people over with your covetousness. Invite them with your kindness. So, what do you think? Do you think the New Testament's going to say anything different than that? Of course not. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. You've probably heard these verses before. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Being able to prefer other people's interests above your own, especially when life gives you every reason to be grouchy and whiny, that's true contentment. That's true contentment. You know, it's one thing to keep your cool when you you can't have your hot pocket. It's another thing to ask your brother, are you hungry? Let me see if I can get you some lunch, not just me. You know, it's one thing to keep, your, keep yourself from whining about how hot it is outside. It's another thing to begin thinking about others in that moment and to ask everyone, it's hot right now. Can I get anyone a cold bottle of water? Thinking not of yourself, but thinking of others. It's one thing to do everything in your power to keep yourself from wallowing in the misery uh, without having your precious Netflix, you know. It's another thing to take the focus off yourself and ask your mom, my day was rough, but how was your day? How was your day? Is there anything I can do to help you out? That's different. That's radical. That's contentment. That kind of attitude suggests I'm so content and so undistracted with my own life right now that I'm free to focus on the needs and interests of others. That's contentment. It moves from the internal to the external. 
So step one, contentment requires us to deny ourselves. Step two, it asks us to prefer others. But step three, it remembers God's sovereignty. It remembers God's sovereignty. Contentment isn't just about how you react to your flesh and how you respond to others. It directly correlates with what you think about God. What contentment does in step three is it identifies specific moments in the past when God's sovereignty is put on display in vivid ways. And it proactively chooses to remember those moments as motivation to get you through the tough times of the present. So what do you mean by this, James? What are you talking about? Well, I really like how Asaph describes it in Psalm 77. Psalm 77. Go ahead and turn over there to Psalm 77, and let's look at this. Psalm 77. This is a psalm of kind of like a lament. He's, Asaph's crying out to God because he's suffering. And he says in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, uh, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out with, without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my soul made a diligent search. And he just kind of keeps going on and on here. And there's something in Asaph's life that's troubling him. And we don't know what it is, but it must be pretty bad because it's got him on, on all fours crying out to God in prayer. And he's weeping from his knees. He's trying to wrestle with God for answers. God, why is this happening to me? What's going on? This doesn't make sense. So Asaph is pouring out his heart to God. He feels lost. He feels troubled. He feels neglected. He feels like God doesn't care about him anymore. He's just overwhelmed by the problems of the present, and he doesn't think he can make it through another day. Where's Asaph going to turn? What's going to get him through and transfer him from a state of erratic discontentment to an attitude of calm contentment. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. What does Asaph turn to? He turns to what God has done. God, what have you done in the past? Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And verse 12 continues, I will ponder your work. I will meditate on your deeds. I will remember uh, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. God, Asaph remembers facts about the past. He's looking for big earth-shattering moments in history when God shows up in big supernatural ways. He remembers those things. Look at verse 15. He remembers specific moments. With you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Israel, uh, sorry, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the troubled, the deep tr trembled. The cloud, the clouds poured out water, and the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. The way was through the sea. 
your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's he referring to? You know what that is? That's the pardon of the Red Sea. That's the pardon of the Red Sea. That's what Asaph remembers. He remembers a specific moment in the past and that reminds him about how God can act in the present. It's not just about, um, it's not just remembering vague ideas. It's remembering specific moments that God has done in the past. That's what Asaph remembers. How am I going to get through the storms of life right now? I'm going to remember a concrete example of God's overwhelming power to save. What has God done in the past to save? And for us, we have a great we have a great example of what God has done to save. What can we remember in the past that God has done to save us? We remember the cross. We remember the resurrection. We remember Jesus taking our place and, and, and forgiving us of our sins. That's what we remember. And that gets us through today. And we can even remember specific moments in our lives when God has saved us in different moments. He has rescued us from, from troubled times. You know, I remember this. You can remember like the strength that he's given you to endure, the impact he's allowed you to have, the joy he's equipped you to share in, the, the patience he's, he's forced you to learn, the encouragement from others he's let you experience. You can remember vividly what God has done and it comforts you to see what God can do. Specific moments, specific moments. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is a great example of this. It talks about that Jesus died for us, that he justified us, that he no longer condemns us, that God didn't spare his own son. And what does that do? That causes us to say with Paul that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What gets us through today? It's remembering what God has done in the past. Remembering what God has done in the past. You know, it, you know if, if someone does something in the past, doesn't it give you a reassurance that they can do it again in the future? It does, right? Absolutely it does. Well, that's what God has done. That's why you have a Bible. It's a reminder that God has done amazing things to save you, to rescue you, to give you hope. And that gives you hope right now in the present to get through the toughest times. It does. Where should you turn when you are experiencing pain, suffering, when you feel like there's just no hope, there's no chance I can get through this day? Turn to the past. Look to the past. Look how God has worked. Look at his sovereignty, his control over all things. That's what gets you through. You can remember those moments in your life that are, that, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you may remember moments in your life when God has actually helped you out. Maybe there's that like lousy day of school, but it forced you to pray more and that more than you had before and you were a better Christian for it, that can be reinforcement for you to, to trust God in today. You know, maybe you had to have a hard conversation with your parents, but it brought your relationship closer together. You know, there are so many times you remember hard things in your life, maybe losing your grandparents, or, or you remember feeling alone and lost and confused, 
but God has helped you through each one of those moments. When you remember those moments in your past, not just the bad, but the good God has accomplished, then you realize that God's got the proven track record to get you through today. Okay? Remember God's sovereignty. Last, I'm going to add a fourth one, a bonus one. There were three steps, but I'm going to add a fourth one real quick. Remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. Don't just look to the past. Look to the future. Look to the future, what God's going to do. God's sovereignty is a two-way street. We don't just look to the past. We look to the future. We anticipate God doing wonderful things because he's promised he will. He's promised he will. I just quoted for you Romans chapter 8. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. That's a promise. That's a promise. You can look to the future and trust that nothing that you're going to experience in the future is ever going to separate you from Christ's love. Um, he's got you. He's, he basically, he has the past locked down. He's got the future locked down. And that gives you the assurance that you can handle the present. If you go into my office, you look and you'll see on my desk that I've got a bunch of books lined up. They're not stacked up. They're just kind of lined up in the back. And they would just fall over all by themselves if they didn't have two bookends that were holding them up in place, right? They need the bookends. Um, and they need those bookends to be able to stand up. And without them, they would just fall apart. They would falter. They would topple over because without bookends, there's nothing that's going to hold them up. Well, God's sovereignty in the past and his promises in the future should act like two sturdy bookends for your life in the present. When everything's out of control and you don't think you've got, you, you can just live another day. You've got two bookends that are going to hold up your life in the present. You've got the past and you've got the future. God's promised to, he's got both of those figured out. You know he's got the past figured out. You've seen it. You know he's got the future figured out because he's promised it. That gives you the assurance that God is going to help you in the present. You see, when you remember that God has always been faithful and he's in absolute control since the very beginning, he's never once failed. And when you remember that God has made wonderful promises for the future, things that make the joys of today look like look pitiful by comparison, then you have two definitive rock-solid reasons to find contentment in the here and now. Contentment is nestled snugly between God's sovereignty in the past and God's promises in the future. And those bookends settle the most trembling heart and relieve the most troubled soul. If God's always been faithful in the past and promises great things in the future, you will make it through the present just fine. You will. So God cares about contentment. God cares about contentment. And you can learn to be content when you deny yourself, when you prefer others, when you remember God's sovereignty, and when you remember God's promises. There's our final ingredient, the 10th commandment. The one that's going to pull the entire mix together. I know the 10 commandments start with, you shall have no other gods before me, and then they work their way all the way down to do not covet. That's the order. But if you want to begin taking these 10 commandments to heart, you know where I think you should begin? I think you should begin with the 10th commandment. 
I think you should, when you learn the secret, the secret of contentment, everything else falls into place. All the ingredients come together into one seamless batch. Of course, here's the thing though, you can't do this if you're not a Christian. You can't. You know, the 10th and final commandments, not for everyone. Just like all 10 commandments, the 10th one's only for Christians. It's only for Christians. It's something that Christians practice because they're saved, not because they're trying to get saved. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. You can't be content. You'll never be content. Your appetite will always be insatiable. You'll never get what you'll be looking for. You, want, you may want power. You may want respect. You may want money or stuff or entertainment or pleasure or comfort or something. But all these things are temporary and they will never satisfy. Never. And so you'll never be content. You'll always be on this endless journey searching for something to make you happy. And it'll never, you'll never get it. It'll always elude you no matter how long God gives you to walk on this planet. You'll never learn to be content. But here's the thing, and this might shock you a little bit. I don't want you to be content. If you're an unbeliever, I don't want you to be content. I don't want you, I, if, you if you don't know Christ, I don't want you walking away happy and satisfied with your life. I don't want you to have the peace and happiness that I've been talking about all along through this sermon. I don't. I don't want you to have the joy and satisfaction that I've been claiming that can be yours when you follow the 10th commandment. I don't want you to have that. I don't. Because you don't want Christ. And any version of, the, of contentment and happiness that you try to gain from this message without him would give you a terrible illusion that you're safe and secure, but you're not. You're not. So I don't want you to be content when you leave this room. I don't, want you I don't want you walking away peaceful and at ease and trying to seek contentment. I want you walking away agitated. I want you to walk away troubled. I want you to walk away broken. That's what I want from you if you're an unbeliever. And then when you finally turn to Christ, repent of your sins and believe in his saving work on your behalf, not your own, then... I hope that you get to enjoy all the contentment in the world. Then I want you to have the contentment that I'm talking about. It'll be yours for the taking. The contentment is for the Christian. It's not for the unbeliever. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the opportunity of contentment, but it's only found in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would give each student the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and may they find the true contentment that only is found in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, convict, convict any heart in this room that doesn't know you. And Father, for those that do, for those that know you, give them the peace and the contentment in this life by seeking to deny themselves, by seeking to prefer others and remember your sovereignty and remember your promises. Father, I pray that that would be their heart's desire, maybe the heart's desire of all of us, saved or unsaved, at, one po at some point in our lives. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.